It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. It's the weekend, and thank you for joining us for this Rule Breaker Investing Weekend Extra. My conversation with Mark Penn earlier this week on Micro Trends Squared covered many bases. And I do want to put in a plug again for the book because it's a fun book to read. You're going to love it if you haven't already. And we could only cover just scanty few of the many micro trends that he introduces in Micro Trends Squared. But in the interests of time, I couldn't cover all of his broad categories. So I decided to take the health and diet portion and the politics portion, politics, especially a world that he's mixed in and knows so well. And I thought, let's have those, but we're going to park those into this weekend extra. So without further ado, the continuation of my conversation with Mark Penn. Again, I'll apologize ahead of time for any garbled cell phone moments that you might experience. Uh, it's not our best sound quality, but the quality of thought is is what we're after. All right, thanks for joining me for this special weekend extra. Mark Penn, author of Micro Trends Squared. I hope you enjoy. I know you enjoyed him on our earlier conversation this week, and. The biggest fans of that conversation are back for this one, our weekend extra, where I'm going to get to go back over the two sections of the book I skipped and just ask Mark about a few of the micro trends that are really fun in the sections of health and diet, and then a place that he's lived a fair amount of his life, the section on politics. So that's where we're headed with this weekend extra. Mark, welcome back. All right. So, Mark, in your section on health and diets, like the other sections of your book, you have eight to ten trends. And within health and diet, which is itself such a big category today, I mean, so many magazines and websites devoted in a way that I don't think humanity has ever been devoted before to our own health and our our diets. The one I wanted to start with is number 14 in your book, wellness freaks. Now, this is one of those slightly pejorative phrases that you brought into the title, but I thought this was pretty fun and pretty great. Since I'm kind of a lazy slug of bed couch potato myself, I do have I try to stay in decent shape, but I don't really have a regimen. And I see people really impressive regimens from people around me and sometimes I even wonder is that too much? Well, hopefully the people around you don't have orthorexia, right? Which is really a growing disease about people's obsessions around what they eat and particularly combined with uh, being a, a data junkie in effect, or self-data lover, right? you put that together with wellness freaks, and you, you can freak out <laughs> about what you're, what you're eating so much right, that, that, that actually this becomes something that could even be harmful. So the move to be helpful, to go into gluten-free products, to have kale over typical lettuce, to have things with you know, more amino acids and, and more minerals and nutrients, can in fact go overboard, and you can become very easily an obsessed wellness freak. And I think this chapter kind of says, look, a lot of this stuff has been great. We've seen heart disease go down. We've seen a lot of benefits, but taken to excess, you really have to watch out for it. Yeah, and I guess that's true of anything, isn't it? Anything taken to excess, probably. But um, I, and, and so I do. I want to double underline the importance of wellness, and I think it's very impressive where humanity is today. Even though there's so much obesity still in America, and obviously so many things still to be fixed, it does seem like there are more people paying more attention to this kind of thing than I remember 30 years ago when I was a kid. And so I'm sure you and I are both very admiring of people who run Ironman. Um, triathlons and go out and save the world, or at least their bodies and their health through these kinds of 
uh, efforts. These are some of the most impressive people I know. But Mark, in the book, you say, quote, most people could use a little more exercise at the gym or a walk around the neighborhood. But once they start organizing their lives around exercise, it can instead become a source of anxiety and inadequacy rather than a cure for the ills of modern life, end quote. Well, that's right, because then if you you accidentally eat the wrong thing, or you don't take enough steps, or you don't do everything, you can you can get so obsessed. But what's happened with gluten-free food is really kind of very interesting, because the matter is gluten-free food, unless you have a sensitivity to gluten or you have a, a celiac disease, it, it, it typically will have more sugar. This has taken off as a wellness craze, whereas this disease probably affects one in 10,000, almost one in 100 eats gluten-free foods. And so that's an example about how, you know, myth can overtake reality quite, uh, quite quickly in the arena of wellness freaks. That's astonishing. So approximately, for every one person who really does need to eat gluten-free, there are approximately 100 people or 99 others who don't need to but are ordering it and maybe think that they need to or maybe in some cases just like the taste or think, hey, why do I need the gluten anyway? But that's, that is, that's, that's where we go beyond microtrends and we see macroeconomics going on because the economics around gluten-free are large. In fact, much your book helped me realize much larger than I was realizing. Yep. If you can get people to order hey, something that's premium, which gluten-free is, even when they don't need it, and even when it doesn't benefit them, that is actually a way to make considerable money. Now look, on the bright side, yoga practitioners have doubled between 2008 and 2016. There's a whole new profession that almost really didn't exist. Mm. 20 years ago, and it's mushrooming uh, because Americans want more uh, med- meditation and, and more time spent in activities like yoga. That's tremendous. Well, the one other micro trend I wanted to talk about in health is also a, a positive story, and it's kind of an inevitable one, I guess, with the progression of more and better cancer treatments. But micro trend number 15, cancer survivors. You write today there are nearly 16 million cancer survivors in the United States. That's up from 12 million in 2008. Yes, and, and I count myself among that, and so I went through the, the kind of personal experience and the in, incredible, I think, treatment you do get uh, from, from big medicine uh, when you do have something serious. But, you know, it's interesting. Afterward, you're not really identified as a class. People tend to hush it up. They don't, they don't really talk about it. Uh, it's something that, that happened in the past, and yet many of the drugs and treatments and chemotherapies cause lasting damage. Uh, generally, you'd be want to have you know some way to you know express yourself or or be be understood as a cancer survivor. And frankly, I found well, there's National Cancer Survivors Day. There really isn't much. No clubs. I don't even get any solicitations. Thank you. Don't solicit. You don't have to solicit me after this <laughs> podcast. But still, it's pretty cute. Uh, you know, I, I it's really quite interesting that people neither recognize the the continued uh, problems of the treatment, don't treat them as a class, and of course, when you have a life threatening experience, that can have long lasting emotional impact that typically goes completely untreated. One of the interesting meta-narratives that runs through your book is how many of these micro-trends are domestic for us Americans, just other U.S. Americans, and then how many of them are actually showing up other places globally, or in, in fact, are some of these global 
microtrends. How do you how do you view Americans' approach to cancer versus other countries? Well, I I think I used here uh, and and in and in the book generally tried to isolate trends that I thought were that you could find generally applicable in a, in a lot of different countries. I think you're going to see the very same thing, you know, in most developed and advanced countries where there where there is a high level of cancer detection and treatment that it, that is saving lives. I think generally in the book we look for exceptions to these trends, but you'll see the world goes from kind of the least developed countries to the most developed countries and the trends tend to reverberate through about three quarters of the world. You know, the one thing I found, you know, like here we have so many more single women than single men in their 60s. And yet if I take a look, uh, if I take a look at China because of the one child policy, they'll have exactly the opposite. But mm. outside of things like this, you'll find the book applies to most cultures, you know, reaching similar stages of, of economic and technological development. All right. From there, let's go to the final section we'll be discussing from your books, Mark. This is the only one I haven't touched yet. It's the one this podcast tends to te- to touch least because I'm not really a particularly political person, even though I'm at Washington D.C. native. Now I know that you've helped uh, Bill Clinton get elected, uh, and some people listening right now are overjoyed by that, and some people are thinking, "Oh, I wish that hadn't happened." Uh, that said, um, though I don't watch TV, when I look at some of your recent television credits, you seem to be on Fox News more than anything else. So it seems like clearly you have a foot in both worlds, and I like that approach, too. I try to have a foot in both worlds and maybe a third foot in, in the world of being an independent as well. Anyway, Mark, before we get into the two micro-trends that I want to feature within your politics section, Mark, I, I'm quoting you from when I heard you speak recently, and you said, politicians are basically speaking to and living in a world 20 to 50 years ago, end quote. Now, I think I've quoted you right, and if I did, could you explain a little bit more your thinking there? Well, look at the issues that, that you see politicians talking about. Typically, they're talking about factory jobs. They're talking, <clears throat> they're talking about immigration. They're they're talking about income redistribution. They're not talking about the gig economy. They're not talking about technology advanced people. Uh, we had a little bit of discussion of privacy for a day when when Mark Zuckerberg went up before Congress, but we could see that most of those people in Congress were not really capable of, of asking questions that they knew the substance of, so they couldn't really follow up on them. Mm. It's really surprising the extent to which we live in a cutting-edge, technology-based society, particularly for for young people now, you know, going in and coming out of coming to college. And we really have, with our political class, a bunch of 60-, 70-year-olds who know very little about technology, very little about the new emerging issues, and so tend to talk about the same things that people talked about in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it's true, and I think in part it's true because technology does just keep progressing and really arguably speeding up, and yet with an increasingly large federal government um, and you know a lot of bureaucracy as a fellow Washington, D.C. guy, you and I see the big buildings everywhere, it just, it's just fundamentally hard for the bureaucracy to keep up with what's happening, especially when what's happening is, is speeding up. So, had I written a Microtrends book 10 years ago, I, I probably would have said something like this, because as somebody who just loves technology, that's just part of my worldview. Is I don't. It's almost like you can't keep up with it, and it's only going to get faster. So clearly, the world's going to need to change some more. Well, I love technology, but in Microtrends Squared, I'm a little wary of unfettered technological development mm-hmm. without ethical codes, 
without a full understanding of the implications. As I always say, if I have a driverless car, and the driverless car is going to make a choice between killing me or killing the pedestrian, I at least want to know what the choice is going to be. <laughs> uh, and, and so we don't understand, I think, the emerging power of technology and its ability to make for us important ethical decisions to restructure the labor force, to deal with, you know, how things are sold and not sold fairly. And and so I found that most of these issues are unaddressed. They're unaddressed because they developed in the last five years, really. Yeah. Technology was too small in its first 20 years, right? And the PC didn't raise as many issues as, as kind of AI and big data are really raising. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to deal with these, I think, sooner than later. All right, the two micro trends I want to feature on this podcast and just hear more from you on. Let's start with number 35. You've already spoken to it a little bit, but it's old economy voters. Yes, for every trend, there's a counter trend. And for the tremendous growth of voters, uh, in who I call Silicon Valley voters, the voters who asserted themselves in the last election were the old economy voters. You know, the, what happened was when I left working for President Clinton, there were about 20 million manufacturing jobs. It had stabilized during Clinton's presidency. During the next two presidencies, it declined to 11 million, leaving an enormous number of disenfranchised, unemployed households who had political power but were losing and had lost their economic power. Hmm. Well, through the Trump candidacy, they reasserted it, and the old economy voters from Indiana through to Pennsylvania were the decisive factor, I think, in this election. And you wrote, following NAFTA and the start of that new millennium, manufacturing jobs, as you just said, plummeted. The numbers were not just true of the U.S., where you mentioned they went basically kind of halved down to about 10 million. The same thing happening, of course, in other countries as well. Per our earlier point in this conversation, the U.K., manufacturing jobs have gone from 4 million in 2000 to, well, 2.6 million in 2010. That was just 10 years later. Not sure what they are in 2018, but this is kind of an inevitable thing. And in the chapter, you're speaking to how well, gray power has beaten out millennial power in the most recent election in this country, arguably. Um, but it seems as if that wouldn't be a long-term bet to make. Well, but when we talk about having a social security crisis, it's because the number of people over 65 is growing and growing. And when John F. Kennedy was elected, people 18 to 29 over overpowered and outnumbered people over 65 by two to one. Today it's one to one, and this is going to continue to tilt in a direction where older voters are going to have more political power than younger voters, right? Unless there's significant immigration, the trend of there being more and more old people relative to people 18 to 29, that is the whole underpinning of the Social Security crisis. Uh, immigrants are usually at a younger age, and that would change the age structure. But absent that, expect old people to be wielding a lot more political power in the future. I guess I'm talking on both sides of my mouth here, because you're right, it, it, it is true, and it's happened. Later in the chapter, you do say, quote, the stabilization, once again, of manufacturing jobs will last decades as a pivotal vote. The numbers are diminishing in the long run, but they could again be powerful in the next round of elections. More important, they're not to be dismissed as deplorable. And I really like this point. I want to quote you in the book here. These Americans 
Um, those who, in this case, will say, I'm presuming you're talking about those who voted for Trump. You said, quote, these Americans are hardworking, family and religion-oriented people who have had their ears boxed by globalization and technology. So, what I like about your line there is, you do have a moderate view of things. I'm more of a centrist myself, and, and I think that you're really saying something that needs to be said. Uh, I appreciate that. I've always been a centrist Democrat, and uh, I'm disappointed that these voters left the Democratic Party because they didn't think had a voice for their values or people who were listening to their economic condition. As Hillary said one day, I think inadvertently she encapsulated the election. She said the half the country that voted for her had two-thirds of the GDP. They were living really well. They were the innovation sector, she said. Well, the half that voted for him was living on only one-third of the GDP. And that made for an angry brew of voters who said, hey, we have been neglected, and they spoke up. Mm. At the end of that chapter, I'm just going to quote you here, because you're talking about the importance of, in this case, getting out of our holes, getting out of the cities and suburbs where so many of us live today. You write, quote, We need to encourage every rising cloistered college student to take a trip one summer, not to Israel or France, but across America. For six weeks, we have become so siloed that Americans simply don't know America. Well, uh, yes, there's a there's a program called Birthright that takes American Jews to Israel. I think we need American birthright. Mm. I think every American should take a bus tour or a train tour for three or four weeks and see the rest of the country. And only by understanding the parts of America that we don't experience or we don't live in will we really understand what it is like to be in the United States of America? I think this could be very powerful. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And then the last microchem we'll talk about on this special weekend extra is number 38. And I think you make a really interesting point about what you call elites. It's not a word I use that often. People do use that word a lot around Washington. I guess it means people who are well-to-do, people who are the thought leaders or the business leaders of our time. Uh, and this microchem, number 38, impressionable elites, Revisited. Now, I think you're revisiting it because I think in your first book, which I've not read from 10 years ago, you were talking about them then. But the irony to me that, that you inject here into this chapter and into your work is that the so-called elites, as it turns out, in many ways seem to be more gullible or impressionable than people who are not as elite. And you'd think they'd be far more discriminating. But, Mark, that's not your view. Well, this started when I was working with Hillary, and people would come up to me and say, if only you'd make Hillary more likable, I'd vote for her. And that was typically a well-educated PhD. And if somebody came up to me and said, oh, Mark, if she would just make her health care plan more about uh, cost instead of coverage, I'd be inclined to vote for her. That would be a middle-class voter. And then I realized this pattern that middle-class voters actually did with health care, paid it sometimes, understood the plans, and the elites had gotten so far removed from the problems that they would be talking about likability, things that no one who really had deep issues would care about. Uh, <laughs> and so that our whole model has been flipped around where the most educated, who are supposed to be the most logical, the most fact-based, actually turn out to be the most impressionable. I mean, I ran Bursa Marsteller, who was a PR agency, geared towards supplying talking points to elites. And so... Our society is being turned almost upside down with the fact that, that elites can be so impressionable. I see this phenomenon uh, of impressionable elites playing itself out in the Trump-Russia 
uh, investigations. I'll sit down sometimes with a with a uh, someone who's got a medical and a health degree, and they'll explain to me elaborately how Donald Trump is laundering money along with his son through condo developments. I'll say, well, what's the evidence for that? And they'll say, well, it's just absolutely true, and I'll find it eventually. You know, it's very interesting because normally I expect those people who believe something to have evidence, and for those who believe to be a subset of the people who see evidence, Lately, I see with a lot of people, in particular elites, they'll have a belief, even though there's no evidence. And that is really surprising. Mm. In the chapter you write, quote, rather than thinking more independently, impressionable elites instead trust even more a chorus conducted by the media and think tanks. Middle and working class American voters, in contrast, are connected very closely in their everyday lives to the issues. And so they base their judgments not on talking points, but on the facts on the ground, end quote. And you see this playing itself out in politics, in the battles that we have over culture, and in the issues that people consider important. I, I think there's a vote. I, I, I wish I had an antidote to it. Right now it maintains, I think, a very important observation that I think more people have to be aware of in, in what you see, in particularly in the last election, is a split perhaps less between Republicans and Democrats in many ways, and more between elites and non-elites. And the non-elites reasserted and took that back their political power, saying, well, you elites, you've been running things for quite some time now, and the cities are no better, we've had pointless wars, we've had bank crashes, maybe we're going to take power back. And I think that's what happened. Mm. All right. We're going to leave it right there. So we went through the six sections of your book. Mark, you were very gracious in sharing two from each of those sections. So we've been through 12 micro trends together. That means there are 38 others we didn't really get to speak to. And if anybody has not yet read your book, I hope they're deeply interested in doing so because every one of the micro trends, especially for investors and entrepreneurs, is so worthy of consideration. A lot of them are just fun. So I wanted to close, Mark, with maybe a thought or two from you about Facebook. Because when I heard you speak recently, um, you were talking some about how Facebook made an interesting strategic choice that's changed our society in some ways. It's changed maybe the last election, so sticking with politics as we close. Facebook deciding to become kind of a news source. It started as a social media platform, but with the introduction of news becoming a significant thing for Facebook, I feel like I'm speaking to one of the experts in the world I could be asking this question of. Mark, do you think that Facebook should have gone into news, and going forward, what should Facebook be doing? Well, I think Facebook should have said, we are a platform we are specifically exempt from the content that we carry. We will get rid of fake accounts. We will make sure that there's you know, proper disclosure on political ads, but we're not going to get into censorship on regulating content, except for that content which the Supreme Court would rule unconstitutional. Mm. I think if they had said that, right, and imposed some community standards and any content that suggests imminent violence and stayed at that point, they would not have lost users or had their stock decline. We are a First Amendment society, and they would have backed the First Amendment. Instead, every time they would say something like that, and I think Mark Zuckerberg is, is on the record of saying, hey, you know, we're not going to knock off Holocaust deniers, he would retreat it from that position quite quickly when someone said, you mean you're not going to knock off Holocaust deniers? <laughs> you're going to let that on your platform? And he should have said, yes. Mm. Because you know what? We're a First Amendment country, and there are a lot of people on my platform who believe in the Holocaust, 
and that's the way it plays out, and that's the choice we've made. Instead, they're hiring ten to 20,000 people to censor. That is a huge mistake. I think it's cutting into the value uh, of, of what they're doing. And rather than become a news distributor themselves, they should have maintained themselves as an open platform standing behind the First Amendment. Mm. Well, I know we have some Facebook employees listening. I'm sure they've heard this from you before. They didn't need to hear it through this podcast. But, Mark, thank you for saying that. And thank you for all your insights. It's been a true pleasure spending time with you. Thank you very much. Well, we don't talk a lot of politics on this show. I don't think I ever will. One of the things I've said in the past on this show is that I'm not a big fan of just the big block political parties because they tend to pit people against each other. Or you're either with the blues, tapping back into my Charles Dickens reading of the Pickwick Papers, which I've done before on this podcast. You're with the blues or you're with the buffs, and you have to be one or the other. And if you're with the one, you don't like the other. And I don't like that. And I was really pleased to hear in our time together with Mark that he's kind of a fellow centrist. He's somebody who, I'm sure he does party affiliate probably more than I do, but I really appreciate that because I think that the center is what needs to strengthen so much in our society, not just the United States today, but the world. Not as big a fan of the, the fringes, especially ones that are very, very strong and and not particularly interested in working with anybody beyond their strong diverse viewpoint. So I appreciated that moderate voice that Mark brought to the show. All right, just a reminder, we've got Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag coming up next week. Yep, you still have time before Monday. That's usually when we comb through what's in the mailbag. So if you want to drop us a note, rbi at fool.com is the email address or tweet at us at RBI Podcast. You might be included in this coming week's mailbag. And remember, we're particularly focusing on submissions that were about any of the books or authors we featured on this special month. Authors in August on Rule Breaker Investing. Have a great weekend. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.